Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. In our first segment, I've invited back genealogy author and lecturer Lisa Alzo. And she's going to be talking with us today about family traits. It's interesting that when you're the generation experiencing something, you don't really see things as clearly uh, as maybe the next generation. As I learned about his life, and, and I was a generation removed, I could appreciate things that maybe she couldn't. And yes, we do get caught up in the names, dates, and places sometimes with our research, but and, and we're always told to do the who, what, when, where, and why, but most people focus on the who, when, and where, and, and the why gets lost. Then in our second segment, we're going to help you along on your own genealogy journey. In today's show, we're going to wrap up following the census breadcrumb trail by making our way through the 1800s until we reach our final destination, the first U.S. census taken back in 1790. Lisa also is an accomplished genealogist. She has authored seven books, including Three Slavic Women, Baba's Kitchen, and Finding Your Slavic Ancestors. She also writes regularly for prominent genealogy magazines, is a sought-after conference speaker, and teaches online genealogy courses for genclass.com and the National Institute for Genealogical Studies. Lisa brings her insight to the topic of family traits. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. I uh, I love all the things that you've written. I know you've got some books out there. Um, the one that always catches my interest is that uh, your book, Three Slavic Women. And I know that that was based on your research into the life of your mother and your grandmother. And I thought it would be kind of interesting to, to have you come into the show today and talk a little bit about some of the traits, some of those things that got passed down through the generations that you came to discover through your research. Tell us a little bit about that. Thank you for what you said about my book. Three Slovak Women was the first project I worked on for family history. And I guess some of the traits that I uncovered while doing my research were, first of all, the the sense of family, the devotion to family. My grandmother was very devoted to her children and grandchildren. And for Slovaks, the family was the most important thing next to God, next to religion. And they were a very close-knit group with, with family. And so my grandmother showed that and passed it on to her children. And my, I saw this devotion in my own mother when she took care of her parents uh, into the later le- years of their lives. And I uh, also then was a caregiver for my own parents for 14 years. So that sense of that you show love and respect and devotion to your family, that that's one of the things that was passed down to me. 
And also another thing that I learned as I was doing my research is that it's interesting that when you're the generation experiencing something, you don't really see things as clearly uh, as maybe the next generation. And with my mother, when I, I did uh, several interviews with her for uh, th- this book, and I asked her about her parents, and my grandfather was a very stern, strict, he was actually Carpatho Rusin, and his attitude was, I'm the boss, and he could be very difficult, uh, especially uh, like many men of his generation. He was a very hard worker. He worked in the steel mills. And when he came home, uh, first he would stop at the local bar and have a drink. And sometimes he didn't know how to control himself uh, after he had had some alcohol. And uh, the alcohol made his naturally stern temper a, a little bit more more difficult and so he had this I'm the boss attitude and he could could be very mean and very very violent at times and so my mother grew up afraid of him and respecting him at the same time Uh, but when she talked about him it was very difficult for her to to put her feelings into words and and I think that as I learned about his life and, and I was a generation removed, I could appreciate things that maybe she couldn't. And he was the poorest of the poor coming from a small village of Osternia near the Polish border. And uh, he was the youngest of 11 children, and his father died when he was young. And so he had a lot of difficult circumstances. And uh, my mother really didn't know much of this about him. And as I learned about his life, I could appreciate maybe not to justify the things he did, but I could understand them better being a generation removed. I think you're right. Sometimes when it's right up against you, you it's, it can be challenging to see it in perspective. But um, uh, And it's an interesting as you build your family tree, you start to realize how many lines in your family don't make it. There are no other descendants. And you start to, it really brings um, a much stronger meaning to the people that made it, the people that survived, as imperfect as they were, as much, as challenging as they were, um, their lines survived when others didn't. So I think that's a perspective that, that our research also gives us, and it's kind of an unexpected one. Um, because I get, I know for me, I get very focused on finding the people, but the absence of people and descendants can also be um, can kind of show you how a family does and how a family fares. Oh, absolutely. I agree. And, and yes, we do get caught up in the names, dates, and places sometimes with our research, but, and, and we're always told to do the who, what, when, where, and why, but most people focus on the who, when, and where, and, and the why gets lost. And, and I agree with you. I, and I always say that if it, if it weren't for the courage of my grandmother, uh, or my other ancestors, my other grandparents, if they didn't have the courage to get on those boats, uh, I wouldn't be here today talking with you. I wouldn't have the opportunities uh, that I do to be able to write and speak and teach and, and do all of the things that I can do today. And it's it's thanks to my ancestors, as you, like you said, the ones that survived. It's just amazing to think with all the obstacles and all the strikes against them, that, that those who did persevere and, and did make it. So I think we owe a great deal to our ancestors who gave up so much uh, for, for a better life. 
I know too. Um, it's interesting. You were talking about the traits of seeing yourself and your, uh, grandmother and your mother. And I remember the day, just a couple of years ago, I was doing some research. I was typing on the computer or something and I looked down and I realized that my hands look just like my mother's and my grandmother's. And it, it's interesting because particularly with, well, with both of them, they were, very artistic people and people who like to sew and cook and do arts. And so I was always very focused on their hands. And it was so interesting to see that, oh, my gosh, I have their hands, too. Maybe that's part of why I like to do those things as well. Have you seen some of those things in yourself? Yes, I have, actually. It's interesting. On my my father's side of the family, my paternal grandmother, I remember doing research a few years back, and I, I found a... I came across a photograph of my grandmother's sister, and when I looked at the picture and I saw the very fine, thin eyebrows, and I said, you know, I I have eyebrows that look just like that, and it's just amazing that you can see physical traits uh, when you look back at photos of your ancestors. Uh, you can actually see some of the physical traits. And also the fine hair that I have comes from that side of the family, too. So it's pretty amazing when you can when you can piece it all together like that. Knowing that your mother, you know, grew up the oldest and therefore um, maybe felt more the impact of her father, did your research or what you've shared with her about what you've found about the family, has that changed her perspective of all, at all in looking back and viewing her parents in, in maybe a different light? Well, it's interesting. My, my, unfortunately, my mother passed away in 2000, and she didn't get to see Three Slovak Women in its final book form, but she did read uh, a previous version of it, the version I submitted for my thesis. And I remember her saying to me, you got it exactly right. You know, it, it was, while it was very painful for her to read some of the parts of it she did say to me yeah you got it exactly right and and uh, she she looked back and said you know yes this all happened but I think it just sort of reinforced how she felt about her parents and and especially her relationship with her father that uh, that she did respect him and fear him at the same time and but she did give me her seal of approval that I did capture uh, the story of the family exactly, exactly the way that it happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, switching gears, I, I've been asking many of my guests on the show this same question, and that is, now that you're years down the road and doing your research, if you had a chance, as you do in this show, to speak to maybe some people who are fairly new to researching their family history, what tips would you give them? What have you learned, or what would you go back and do differently from the beginning if you had the chance? Well, first of all, what I what I would have done definitely would I would have spoken or asked my maternal grandmother questions uh, about her life. That's my biggest regret. Uh, even though I, I knew my grandmother, I was in college when she died. I I'd never talked to her about her life. Uh, she was just my grandmother. She made great food and she was loving and kind. But I never asked her about her life as a young woman or coming to America. So I just didn't have the interest in genealogy. And 
with my other grandparents, my father's parents died. Uh, my, my paternal grandfather died before I was born, and, and my grandmother when I was two, and my maternal grandfather died when I was nine. So I really didn't have the opportunity to speak to them but or ask them questions. But my grandmother, I definitely would have asked her many of the questions I ended up having to ask my mother and my aunts and uncles. But I think for anybody just starting, get as much information as you can uh, from home and from family sources. And if you have relatives that are still uh, living that you can speak with, do it now and get get them recorded and you know get get it on tape, videotape, audio tape, whatever you can do, and then uh, start digging and, and getting as many documents and, and get those photographs identified. Uh, I have boxes and boxes of unidentified photographs because I never asked uh, those who were were living to to do that, and now they're gone, and I miss those opportunities. So I would say definitely talk to your relatives, and then you know be organized right from the start, and and get as as much documentation and information as you can possibly uh, get to begin with. Exactly. It's it's never too late to start, but um, my hope is that we'll grab the interest of some of the younger people out there as well to get started now while those people are still around. Great words of advice, Lisa. It, it's just so important to get the the younger people interested and involved. And, and, and also the other thing is I always tell folks that if you are the oldest generation, there's no harm in writing your own memories down. I mean, it's a good idea to document your life story and don't wait for the, the children or grandchildren to ask, but, but write down your memories. And, and this is such a great legacy. And, 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 you know, I always say that they may not be interested now, but maybe 10 years down the road, they'll be thankful that you took the time to share your story and, and, and they will be interested. And, and I really wish that my ancestors would have done that for me. Uh, but I, I, had, you know, I had to go out on my own and, and find the information sort of secondhand. So it's never too late to even write down your own memories and, and leave that as a legacy for future generations. It truly is a legacy that anybody can leave. Oh, Lisa, your sweetheart, thank you so much for coming to the show and, and sharing your story with us. Oh, you're so welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. I really en- enjoyed being here. We're back, and I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook, and this is the place in the show where we give you the tools to successfully research your family history. This week, we're going to wrap up our review of U.S. federal census records. In Episode 9, we explored the history of the census and found our first record in the 1930 census. In Episode 10, we made our way through the remaining censuses available for the 20th century, discussed the sad demise of the 1890 census and the available alternatives, and we heard from Kurt Witcher of the Allen County Public Library about some of the other fascinating yet often overlooked enumerations compiled by the U.S. Census Bureau. In today's show, we're going to be making our way back in time through the 19th century census records until we reach its origin, the 1790 federal census. 
We'll start back up with the 1880 census, which includes over 50 million people. Generally, in 1880, you're going to find the name, address, occupation, relationship to the head of the household, race, sex, age of the last birthday, marital status, place of birth, and the parents' place of birth. So as you can see, the amount of genealogical information is a bit less than those found in the 20th century, and that will continue to be the case as we're going to go back further in time which takes us back to the 1870 federal census, which was rather historic in nature. You see, after the Civil War ended and slavery was abolished, the decennial census questionnaires were reordered and redesigned because an end had come to the slave questionnaire. The schedules for the 1870 censuses were known as general population for the first time. According to the report of the superintendent of the 1870 census, Francis A. Walker, the emancipation of the slave population in the 15 southern states increased the official population of the Union from 29.5 million to just over 38 million, a gain of 28.99%. The 1870 census also included another first, Citizens now faced penalties if they refused to answer any of the enumerated questions on any questionnaire. This isn't something that you hear a lot about, and it indicates that prior to 1870, there may be more omissions than in later years. So just because a column is left blank doesn't mean it didn't apply to your ancestor. They may just not have been interested in answering that question. Francis Walker made particular note of past underhanded practices, such as farming out subdivisions and of taking the census at elections on court days instead of having enumerators personally visit each household in his subdivision, which was sometimes practiced throughout the country and particularly in the southern states. Walker says in his report, and I quote, it is believed that the enumeration of the people at the present census has been as carefully and honestly performed in every part of the country as at any preceding period. In no section has the percentage of loss taking city and the county together been considerable. The field on the whole has been thoroughly gleaned, and in the great majority of subdivisions, far more pains has been taken under the stimulus of public criticism than the government paid for or had reason to expect. It is not claimed that the census of any state is perfect, for a perfect census cannot be taken in any state with the machinery established by existing laws. The omissions which have occurred, however, are probably not sufficient in any case to affect the practical result of congressional representation, although any degree of error in a work of such a character is excessively annoying to every person of the least statistical instinct. <laughs> And representation in Congress really was the first and the primary reason for this federal census. But it's nice to know that, well, over a hundred years ago, so much care was taken to get it right. And that certainly benefits us when we use it for family history purposes. Now, as we move back to the population schedule for 1860, we do lose some valuable information most notably the column that they recorded the country where the person's parents were born. What a help that was for going backwards through the generations. But you're still going to find each family member's age, place of birth, and real estate value. The same is true for 1850, 
And in fact, the 1850 census is the last census going back in time where we're going to find each person listed individually. That's because in 1849, Congress enacted a bill establishing a census board consisting of the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, and the Postmaster General. The law authorized this board to do what it took to conduct a full enumeration of the inhabitants of the United States. In other words, an every name census, which had not existed before then. Congress also authorized the board to create schedules of mines, agriculture, commerce, manufacturers, education, and other topics, as well, and I quote, exhibit a full view of the pursuits, industry, education, and resources of the country. And of course, those subjects are covered in those special censuses that Kurt Witcher told us about, and which we're going to talk more about in just a minute. But this leads us further back to a time when only the head of the household was actually listed by name. Things are going to look a lot different in the censuses from this point going back. But don't get too discouraged because if you pay close attention and use additional sources like county histories, you can learn a lot from all those little tick marks that you're going to find that count people by age and sex under that head of household. So for 1840, 30, 20, and 1810, and finally 1790, the first U.S. federal census, you will find the name of the head of household in the first column. And this is either a single person living alone, uh, the owner of a home where other people rent, and those other people are just kind of tick marks, uh, the husband of a married couple, or a widow. Then you're going to find columns where the enumerator placed tick marks as he counted each person in the household. In 1840, there are lots of these columns separating the members of the household by sex and then by age. And slaves were counted in the same manner, as were the deaf, dumb, blind, and insane. They also counted employees. And a bright spot is that they actually wrote in the name of each person who was a pensioner of the Revolutionary War or military service. And those names can help you not only determine if you have the right family, but can lead you to a wealth of military records, which we will definitely cover in the future. Now, as we go back to 1820, it's a much simpler form. Gosh, as you look at these, you know, it's like the census is slowly disintegrating. But of course, it's not. We're just looking at its evolution backwards. And by the time we get back to 1810 and 1800, slaves are down to just one column for a total count and a column for all other free persons other than white males and females. And when we arrive back at the very first U.S. federal census taken in 1790 under Census Bureau Director Thomas Jefferson, we find just six columns for the questions that are being asked. The population is just under 4 million people, which comes out to roughly four and a half free residents per square mile for those 13 young states. It took 660 census takers and about $44,000 to make it happen. Just over a penny a person. Again, don't get too discouraged if you're lucky enough to have taken your family tree all the way back to 1790 and you're finding just the name of the head of the household and a bunch of tick marks. Remember that there were a lot fewer people back then. And if you're fortunate enough to know the state and better yet the county that your ancestor lived in, 
You probably won't find dozens, if not hundreds, of men with the same name as you would today. So if you're lucky enough to still be fishing, you will have the benefit of a much smaller pond. Now remember what Kurt Witcher said in our last episode about the variety of enumeration schedules that were taken. Let's head back to 1880 for a moment. In addition to the population schedules, which we've all just talked about, in 1880 you can find additional schedules like mortality, agriculture, social statistics, and manufacturing. So let's take a look at each of these in more detail, so that we can get a sense of what kind of information that we can find. First is the mortality schedule, which records the number of deaths that occurred the year prior to the census. In this case, that would be 1879. According to the Census Bureau, this was done prior to official death registration, and by 1880, it was only required for counties where official death registration didn't occur. So mortality schedules were only taken from 1850 to 1880, and in it you'll find the person's name, age, sex, occupation, cause of death, date of death, and the county where they died. So if you're fortunate enough to have an ancestor who did pass away in 1849, 59, 69, or 79, you will have an additional census record, the mortality schedule, where you can find them listed. Also available for these same four schedules, 1850, 60, 70, and 1880, is the agricultural schedule, which lists the holdings of individual farms. Now, all of them include the name of the farm owner, the agent or manager, the value of the farming equipment, horses,、uh, milk cows, working oxen, other cattle, sheep, and pigs, the value of livestock. Uh, bushels of wheat, bushels of corn, Indian corn,、um, oats, pounds of rice, and pounds of tobacco. In the later years, 1870, 1880, they contain even more detailed information. So, if your ancestors were farmers, you will definitely want to track down and view the agricultural census schedules. Now, not every farm was listed in the schedules. In 1850, a farm had to earn at least a hundred dollars annually to be included. By 1870, they had to have at least three acres and earn over $500 a year. Also available for these decades, 1850 through 1880, is the Social Statistics Schedule, and this schedule is really chock full of the context of your ancestors' lives. There are ten major categories that you're going to find historical information on: real estate value, seasons and crops, annual taxes. Colleges and schools, libraries, newspapers and periodicals, religion, pauperism, crime, and wages. So, for example, if you are researching a family in 1880, it would be very helpful to know exactly which newspapers were being published in the county where they lived. Knowing the names of the papers makes locating that paper in a library or an archive much easier. And you'll find out more than just the name of the paper, but also the type of paper that it was, how frequently it was published, and its circulation. If your ancestor's county didn't have its own newspaper, you can check the social statistics schedule for neighboring counties until you find one that does. News of the birth of a baby or the death of a citizen, you know, didn't have boundaries, and that includes county boundaries. So be sure and check those neighboring counties.
And of course, many of our ancestors were members of their local churches, which means that you might find records there. You know, checking your local telephone directory isn't going to give you an accurate picture of the churches that existed when your ancestors lived there in 1880. But the social statistics schedule might. You'll find the number of churches and their denominations, uh, the number of worshipers that they could accommodate, and the value of the church's property. You'll also find manufacturing schedules in 1880, and in fact, you'll find them through most of the 19th century. In 1810, an act of Congress directed that an account of the several manufacturing establishments and manufacturers be made. However, neither Congress nor the Secretary of Treasury provided the U.S. Marshals with specific instructions as to exactly what kind of information they were supposed to be collecting. So, as a result,、um, you're going to find that the quality and the quantity of that information that was collected is going to vary a lot. The 1820 and 1850 through 1880 manufacturing schedules reported the name of the manufacturer. Uh, the type of business or product, the amount of capital invested, the quantities, kinds, and values of raw materials they used,、um, the quantities, kinds, and value of products produced annually, the kind of power machinery that they used, the number of men and women employed, and the average monthly cost of male and female labor. The amount of detail reported in these schedules increased in 1870 and again in 1880. According to the National Archives, in 1880, supplemental schedules were also used for specific industries, such as for boot and shoemaking,、um, lumber and sawmills, flour and grist mills. But again, size makes a difference, and manufacturers that produced less than $500 of goods were not included. So, when you find your ancestors' occupation listed in the population schedule. There is a good chance that you can learn a lot more about the industry that they worked in by checking out those manufacturing schedules. And I've got some tips for you、uh, in regards to using these schedules.、Um, even though your ancestor may have been listed as a farmer in the population census, and therefore you also found him in the agricultural schedule, it doesn't mean you've completed your search. There's a chance that a man with a successful farming business may also have been in manufacturing. Okay, for example, a man listed as a farmer in the population schedule, who you will also find in the agricultural schedule with an accounting of his many cows, may very well be listed in the manufacturing schedule with a thriving butter production business. It's funny how we sometimes, when we find information such as our ancestors listed as a farmer. That it can actually kind of shut down our investigative thinking, and we just think of them. Okay, now I know he's a farmer. So keep thinking outside that census box, and you'll probably find even more information in the census than you expected. And here's a research tip that applies to both the manufacturing and the agricultural census schedules. Unlike the population census, a person did not have to live in a particular county. To be listed in the manufacturing or agricultural schedules for that township or county, so be on particular lookout for situations like this when your ancestors live near county and township lines. And finally, a word about the slave schedules. Since I haven't worked with the slave schedules myself, I'm I'm going to point you to some reliable resources for learning how to use them. I would recommend that you start with the research wiki. 
quick guide to African-American records at FamilySearch.org. I realize when I put these census episodes together that you very likely have already had some experience with census records, but I think it really helps to review the schedules from their beginning in 1790 all the way through the most recently available 1930 census. It's real easy to get some tunnel vision going when it comes to research because we get really focused, don't we? But now I hope that you will look at our census research options with a working knowledge of the entire census system rather than just the page that you found in front of you. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about, at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.